Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 68, July 4th to July 10th, 1862. Last week, we fought three battles in the seven days, making for quite an action-packed episode. Although technically ending last week, I thought that it would be better to break it up just a little bit and fight the final battle of the seven days at Malvern Hill this week. I'd like to then take a little bit of time to talk about the impact of the Peninsula campaign just to close it out. Making for another large episode, we have some smaller events here in the beginning of July that will take us to a variety of different places outside of Virginia, which may be a welcome change for the amount of attention the Old Dominion has been getting here recently. So when we left off last week, the Union Army was able to stave off disaster at Glendale. McClellan shifted his army to Malvern Hill, which was the southern part of his line on the 30th. Theophilus Holmes had failed to take advantage of the high ground, although I think he would have had a hard time holding the ground. Holmes was up against the entire 5th Corps, so he had a numerical disadvantage. Speaking of the 5th Corps, though, Porter had made the slope into something that would be tough to attack, and since he had done so by placing artillery, he would be given command. McClellan, of course, was going to be moving on, trying to find a base to save the army. Little Mac has not had a good time of it. He had sent a message to Washington, essentially accusing Stanton and Lincoln of sabotaging him. That particular line was struck by the telegraph operator. People knock telegraph as a means of communicating, but there you go. If you're accusing your commander-in-chief of treason, essentially, against you, then it would behoove you to have a telegraph operator who can uh, strike that line from the record. It's probably not happening with a text message. In the main message, though, McClellan had told Washington he was trying everything in his power to save the army. Lee, on the other hand, was seeing his chances evaporate. Mulvern Hill would be the final chance in the seven days that Lee is going to have to destroy McClellan. If you were to go to Mulvern Hill, you would really get a good grasp on the terrain and the problems that Lee would face in a potential assault. It is a slow sloping hill, and at the time of the battle, it was mostly open field of wheat and corn. The Union Army sat on a sort of plateau, making it difficult to get at them from the flanks, and the top of the hill gave them more ground to deploy their artillery. Longstreet would suggest to Lee that if they were to take advantage of the high ground on both flanks, they might be able to get enough guns to challenge Porter. It was decided that Magruder and Huger's men would comprise the Confederate right, 
with D.H. Hill in the center and Jackson on the left. Longstreet's and Hill's men would be held in reserve after being involved in the heaviest fighting on the 30th. July 1st would see the Confederates attempt to bring guns onto the Union position. Porter essentially had the entire army at his disposal. Everyone was in a good spot to support. Morrell's division would be on the left, while Darius Couch, whose division in the Corps of Keys, would take the right. These men had not been engaged as of yet. Sumner and Heinzelman were in the area with their men for assistance. Reinforcements would be provided much in the same way as they had at Glendale, piecemeal. Problems would begin early. Magruder would take the wrong road as a result from a miscommunication between a map and a guide. Longstreet told Magruder he was probably on the wrong route, but also told Prince John he could not order him to countermarch. Magruder would do so, wasting more time. We can be somewhat sympathetic to Prince John. He will be suffering from fatigue and have a reaction to morphine that had to be prescribed to him. One of his orderlies reportedly had a conversation about how the general was not himself, to which Magruder replied that this was indeed the case. Whether illness or morphine, Magruder would have a stain on his record at Malvern Hill. Lee's plan for the day was to catch the 37 guns on Malvern Hill in a crossfire between left and right flanks. Once the federal position was successfully rendered, then there would be an assault. Lewis Armstead's brigade from Huget's contingent would be the first to lead. Huget was not on the field himself, sore that two of his brigades had been ordered by Lee, bypassing him. A confliction in orders would essentially lead Armistead to be the decision-maker in when the assault would begin. An attack with a yell would be the trigger for an all-out attack by the rest of the field. D.H. Hill was quoted to having said of Malvern Hill that if McClellan was up there, we best leave him alone, which speaks to the strength of Porter's spot, especially considering the source. Streams on both sides would make flank attacks tough, and obviously the artillery would make a frontal assault deadly. Jackson could potentially get purchase on the left, but attacking from the other flank had already been discouraged from moving on their side of the field the previous day. Why exactly would the Confederates decide they could take the hill, though, if it was so strong? While well, the experience at Gaines's Mill was enough for Lee to have confidence in the plan, an all-out attack there had been the deciding factor. What was more, the Union Army was on the run. If they could break them on July 1st, then there was a good chance that the fortune of war would be greatly altered. For the Confederates, artillery would not be thrown into the fray in a manner that was conducive for a grand battery as Lee had envisioned. Instead, they were moved up piecemeal, giving the Federal artillerists time to meet the threat with overwhelming numbers and then eliminate them. 
In fact, Jackson, who was placing his pieces personally, missing his chief of artillery, would throw some 15 against the Yankees. Chase Whiting would disagree that the amount of artillery that Jackson had placed was not enough to dislodge the Union pieces. This caused Jackson to snap at him to obey orders. Whiting would respond that he would always obey orders, but he would not follow those willingly. Destruction of the rebel pieces would be the result. Those 15 were the closest that the rebels would come to achieving their crossfire and challenging the enemy. But it is actually a misconception that the rebel artillery fire had zero effect on the Union position on the hill. In fact, there are northern accounts from those that were there who mentioned that the Confederates did achieve their attendant crossfire from the positions in the crew field and the Poindexter farm. They were not able to gather enough concentrated fire to be fully effective in neutralizing the Federals though, which led to the renewed focus on the infantry assaults. Union artillery would continue to be effective, firing thousands of rounds, shot, shell, and canister. As the day wore on, Armistead would advance his brigades to clear Union pickets. This would be a problem for several reasons. His men would be the focus of the artillery and caught in a position where they could not retreat, but rather hunker down. Attention diverted, the flanks would then see a slackening of the enemy fire which was evident that perhaps the Union Army was on the retreat again. Whiting would report a withdrawal in his area, which combined with the supposed success of Armstead. This led Lee to think the time had finally come to assault the enemy. John Bankhead Magruder finally reached the field with his troops and got Lee's first order about attacking once Armistead kicked things off. Another order showed up for a general assault, which made Magruder think he was dropping the ball yet again. Lee most likely thought there would be a discretion in the decision as they were conditional orders, something not conveyed in the quick turnaround time they were received. Magruder would request control of Huget's brigades, but Huget was still being stubborn. Billy Mahome, who did not have any love for his superior, was game to jump in with Magruder and joined in the assault, though. Mahone's brigade and Magruder's men were all thrown in piecemeal, so there was no great concentrated assault. As each of the Confederate units advanced, they did so across open ground with no cover. Artillery and infantry fire would thin out the ranks. Federals on the scene would write about the devastating effect that the fire would have on the enemy, cutting massive holes in the ranks. Magruder would not be helped by the amount of stragglers he had. Marching and countermarching most likely did little to aid the situation. DHL would join in the assault and get equally mauled by the Union return fire. His men would sustain 1,700 casualties in the Confederate right center, more than they had taken at Gaines's Mill. 
the 61st Pennsylvania, which had broken at Seven Pines, would achieve revenge on DHL's men by inflicting heavy casualties in their assault. So many fugitives from the broken regiments were streaming away from the battle that Jackson was unable to bring up his full force for support, or to dislodge Couch. John Bell Gordon, who was still in command of the brigade for the wounded Rhodes, would perhaps have the most luck in advancing toward the enemy line, but with heavy losses. Gordon miraculously was not wounded during the action, just as he had come out of Seven Pines unscathed. The Federals were not without their own casualties, though. Morrell's division, who had already seen action at Gaines' Mill, would take the brunt of the assaults. Porter would call for reinforcements and receive them in the form of Caldwell and Mars brigades. Actually, Porter was concerned that the rebels would achieve their breakthrough. A new line of reserve artillery was set up for such an occasion. But there would be no repeat of Bosun's Creek. Union casualties are probably higher than you might think for a battle that seems so one-sided. The reason for this is that at several times, infantry units would advance to the front of the batteries and engage the Confederates. These actions were necessary to keep the rebels from reaching the cannon. Sickles and the Excelsior Brigade and Morrow with the Irish Brigade had to quickly move forward to stop Confederate infantry. Confederates would suffer approximately 5,500 casualties as opposed to the 3,000 for the Federals, mostly due to this action. Henry Hunt, who commands the artillery, as well as Charles Griffin, deserve a lot of credit for the victory. Hunt had two horses shot from under him while personally placing the pieces and rotating units who had exhausted ammunition. I just want to mention before we get into a little bit of a recap here that Malvern Hill is an interesting battlefield to go to because I think you get a good idea of the terrain and the problems that the Confederates had in attacking the Union line. I hope to perhaps do another slideshow. I did one with uh, Pea Ridge and one with Gaines's Mill. Malvern Hill is in the Richmond area, but it's kind of out of the way, so it's probably not one that you're really making a trip to go to. So hopefully be able to post that and if you want to see pictures of the modern day battlefield and you really get a good idea of the terrain and, and the difficulty associated in the assaulting of the hill and why they failed. Jackson would save Trimble from assaulting the hill in the evening saying that the action was over. Likewise, he predicted that McClellan and his army would be gone in the morning. McClellan, who declined Porter's suggestion of a counterattack, would move his army down to the James and the protection of the gunboats. These same gunboats had fired on the Confederates, but had to be ordered to cease due to some of their fire landing amongst friendly troops. While Little Mac had been aboard one of these vessels during Glendale, he actually did go to shore on the 1st, despite the rumor he hid on the river 
rather than taking command. He does not take command, it should be pointed out, but he does observe the battle from the flank. McClellan would not correct these attacks in 1864 because refuting them would reveal his actual stint on the 30th, damaging his reputation and presidential chances. The last battle of the Seven Days would conclude with Lee taking unnecessary losses due to poor communication and McClellan retreating when it was not necessary. This is a sort of fitting theme to our last few episodes. We can now put a fork in the Seven Days and the Peninsula Campaign. Know that McClellan and his army are going to be hanging around for a little bit before moving the Army of the Potomac in full force back to Washington. John Pope will be taking the reins in Northern Virginia, and Lee will have to give him his full attention. What, though, do the Seven Days mean? What can we take away from these battles at the gates of Richmond? Well, we figured out George B. McClellan is not the answer. He clearly suffers from a lack of confidence, and the high casualties are something he does not want to see. On the flip side, Lee has been solidified as the Confederate commander in the East, although he will have to rework his plans moving forward. Several chances to essentially end the war, or at least make life tough for the North, were given to Lee, and through various faults, they were not capitalized upon. Jackson will have to perform better, and there will be officers on both sides replaced. Huger, Magruder, and Holmes will all be placed in the cupboard. Heinzelman will not be around for too much longer, commanding a corps, and Keyes would be left behind on the peninsula. For the South, there was confidence. Remember, they had been suffering setback after setback, in the North, there would be a realization that the war would have to be hard won. Hitting the civilian population would be necessary to bring about a conclusion to the conflict. Part of this would be emancipation, which is coming later in 1862. Just know that because of these hard battles at the gates of Richmond, these seeds have been planted. I feel like we will wrap up the peninsula and the seven days even further coming up, but this will do for a conclusion for now. Just to backtrack, on June 30th, we actually have what is known as the Yankee Outrage in Tampa. Now, if that sounds ominous, I can assure you it is not quite so. In April of 1862, there had been a Union ship who demanded the surrender of the Florida town. Refusing the surrender sparked a brief exchange of artillery fire. On June 30th, the USS Sagamore would come back and demand for the town's surrender once again, or else evacuate the town of women and children. Confederate defenders responded that they did not know the meaning of the word surrender 
which then resulted in more artillery fire. The USS Sagamore would withdraw out of the range of the three 24-pounders the Confederates possessed, and overall, little damage was done. July 1st would see the Union naval vessel depart. Now this is important for several reasons. It gives us a glimpse into what exactly the war was like for a time in Florida. Tampa, among other coastal towns, were originally strategic for their location to the Caribbean, but citizens would move inland rather than be subjected to bombardments such as this. In addition, the U.S. blockade proved effective. Eventually, the town would be captured in 1864 without resistance from the Confederates, who had likewise abandoned Fort Brooke. We need to now tie in the action we saw on the White River with the Army of the Southwest. Samuel Curtis, if you recall, had moved into Arkansas, but was stopped short of capturing Little Rock, which he really wanted to do. His army was actually drained of some troops, as Jefferson C. Davis and Henry Asbeth were both reassigned. Curtis still had three brigades under Steele, Osterhaus, and Carr, and some of these names should be familiar from our March episode on Pea Ridge. Curtis would cut his supply line back to Missouri, allowing his army to live off the land, on their way to Clarendon, Arkansas. They had to stop there due to the low water, if you remember. Now, the appeal of getting there for the Army of the Southwest was that the flotilla that had been engaged at St. Charles was there, and thus the possibility of getting resupplied. In the way of Curtis was Thomas Heinemann, who had gathered some 5,000 Texas cavalry and a handful of Arkansas infantry regiments. His forces, under Albert Rust, would move to block the crossing of the Union forces at the nearby Cache River. Curtis was able to move some of his men across due to the low water. Two Texas cavalry regiments would move to block off the continued advance of the Northerners. On July 7th, the Union advance guard under Charles Hovey would move to Cotton Plant, conducting reconnaissance. Men of the 11th Wisconsin, 33rd Illinois, and Indiana Artillery would be operating in the vicinity and run into the 11th and 16th Texas Cavalry. William Parsons was the rebel commander on the field. The two sides would open fire on one another before the Texans charge, pushing the Federals back. Edward Pike of the 33rd Illinois would win the Medal of Honor by saving a cannon that would potentially be captured by the oncoming cavalry. Union forces would rally and break the Texans, forcing them to retreat. Eventually, the pursuit was given up. Casualty figures are all over the place for these engagements. 63 for the Union side, and anywhere from 50 to 250 for the Confederate side.
Curtis would reach Clarendon too late as the flotilla had steamed away the day before. The Army of the Southwest would then move on to Helena, Arkansas on the Mississippi and occupy that town for some time, being incorporated in the future Western campaigns. On July 11th, Henry Halleck would be named the new overall commander of the Union forces. Old Brains in some ways would be upset he was denied a true battlefield victory. Corinth, if you recall, was not quite so climactic. Grant, on the other hand, was most likely eager to see Halleck depart for Washington. I do want to check in on Grant and see what's been going on with him in a future episode. It was the hope of Washington that Halleck would be different from Little Mac. It will prove true as we see events unfold that Halleck will in fact be different than McClellan, but not necessarily what Lincoln is looking for. Halleck is a great administrator and organizer kind of similar to McClellan, but at least he had a battlefield victory in Corinth, which was not quite even on the scale as some of these battles in the Seven Days, but it was a victory nonetheless, which McClellan unfortunately doesn't have a whole lot of. Halleck is going to be necessary in dealing with John Pope, who, if you recall, Pope had already served under Halleck, If you're looking for a contrast with McClellan, then John Pope is probably your guy. But, much like with Halleck, it's not necessarily going to be what Lincoln is looking for. Just remember that moving forward, Halleck has a certain talent for administration, which is seen as valuable. He did have a very large army, and did a good job of keeping track of it. Halleck will be in Washington, fulfilling this role all the way until 1864. Let's call it there. We had the final battle of the Seven Days, the Union victory at Malvern Hill. We also had action in Arkansas near the Cache River, which is near Clarendon, which, in a way, is the continuing story for the Army of the Southwest from back in March. In a rare occasion, we also got to check in with Florida, which in many ways is going to be the least touch of the Confederate States, as we are going to see. Next week, we will see not one, but two cavalry raids and a naval action, so stay tuned for those. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Once again, the Gaines's Mill Patreon episode is posted, so I think there's been enough time that has gone on. We, we posted that episode there last week, so if you want to see the modern battlefield, make sure to check that out. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, 
The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.